Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Gary Brugger has been a definite blessing to the holiness movement for several decades. He's been a pastor, an evangelist, as well as a conference leader. This sermon was preached back in 1988 at the God's Bible School and College Fall Revival in Cincinnati, Ohio. I know you'll enjoy this wonderful sermon that he titles, Procrastination. My soul says hallelujah. Amen. I will glory in the cross. Praise his name. My soul has been feasting on the music, the rich and wonderful music. It just doesn't seem to matter who sits down at any of the keyboards. You're in for a wonderful treat. And then the spatial singing is just a testimony of the excellent work of the music department here, but even above that, the anointing of God. I thank God for that. Amen. I'm going to speak to you this evening on a great and a common problem to mankind everywhere. It seems that in any age, Men have wrestled with this difficulty. To point that out, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 24. And I'd like for you also to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 8. While you're finding those passages, I would like to also express my deep appreciation for the praying that's being done and the exhortations to fasting. And I trust that you're doing it. And I think that when God comes and helps as he's been endeavoring to do, it is because people, God's people, have been praying and fasting. And I encourage you to continue it. The book of Acts, chapter 24, verse 25. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, 
I will call for thee. And in the book of Exodus, chapter 8 and verse 10, it is the words of Pharaoh in the midst of the plagues. Moses has asked him a question. When do you want me to entreat God in your behalf? The first words of the 10th verse of chapter 8. And he said, tomorrow. He said, tomorrow. That's the way Pharaoh expressed it. Felix expressed it. When I have a convenient season. We're early in this revival endeavor, but procrastination has been a problem for men of every age. I have observed in my brief ministry that as meetings progress, God works more and more, and a common testimony is, oh, I only wish I had done it sooner. And most of the time, it's not because we didn't know what to do. I mean, I am confident of the fact this evening that I'm speaking to some young people who have some restitutions that they know before they ever get clear with God they're going to have to take care of. You know that, but you just haven't done it yet. You're going to. And this entire revival endeavor can be blessed and helped and can reach out further if we'll each one here early in the meeting do what we know we ought to do. Just to show you how common this is, I mean, no doubt there are several of us here this evening who have purposed that we are going to lose weight. I mean, we really are. We're going, to, we're going to get on that diet. And we are going to shed a few pounds. Some have waited until just after the Labor Day because uh, summer's over now. And really before the holiday season comes, I do need to get down a little bit. And I am going to lose some weight. And there's probably several that have assured themselves and some of their friends of that very fact. I'm really going to do it this time. I am. Don't look at me like that. I am. But oh, how easy it is to say tomorrow. Because after the service this evening, I'm, a, I'm just a little tiny bit hungry. And I believe I will go down for one last fling at the snack bar. <laughs> And I'll start that diet tomorrow. I I really will. This time, no joking. And tomorrow, I'm going to take it by the job. I will. Tomorrow. (laughs) I see some married folks here, and probably if your house is anything like the majority of American homes, there are some faulty light switches, some outlets that aren't working, some doorknobs that are loose, a window pane that's cracked. Oh, there's just any number of things, a leaky faucet or two. And the wife has been urging you 
Please get that fixed. I will, honey. Tomorrow. I really will. I've been intending to, but you you realize how busy I am. And I am going to do it. Tomorrow. I'll pick up the needed washers or the needed kit or whatever it is, and I will do it. Tomorrow. And by the way, while we're talking about it, how about that shirt that the button's off of and I've asked you to put it back on for me? Have you done that yet? Oh, honey, I got all busy with this special dish for supper this evening and I, I, I'll get to it tomorrow. What about my gray slacks that you were going to uh, alter for me? Well, I, I'm going to get to that while I'm at the sewing machine tomorrow. I'll just take care of that too. And the seasoned faculty here know only too well all the many, many excuses why term papers are late. They urged, they exhorted, they threatened, they must be on time, and you intended to have it on time. But, you know, really, I mean, goodness sakes, we're just getting started. It's still the 1st of September. And that deadline is still two months away. But I am going to start on it tomorrow. And I imagine that when test times come, though you know that that outside reading that had to be done, and you know the preparation and going through your notes and getting all ready for that test, But most of the time, we put off that real preparation for it until the test is tomorrow. And we tell ourselves, I'm never going to get in this fix again. But because of our human nature, it is so easy and so comfortable to put off till tomorrow. Now, in some of the areas that I've, been, that I've been speaking about, leaky faucets get on your nerves, faulty switches can shock you, a missing button is, well, you need that button. But those are not life-threatening matters or issues. But you see, it is so easy for that procrastination spirit and attitude and habit to not just stay in one area of our lives, but it just kind of spills over until it's in every area across the board of our lives. We're going to start praying more on a regular basis every day. Tomorrow, I had an interesting experience. You'll love this. I had gone to hold a revival meeting, and uh, a fellow was just young, and uh, well, he's about the same age as I was at the time. It was his first pastorate. He said, "When I got there, he said, now, Brother Bruger, he said, we have a rough schedule around here.'" I said, "Oh, really?" I said, "Well, I'll just try to fit in." 
as best I can. I said, I don't want you to go to any bother for me. And I said, whatever your schedule is, I said, I said, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to, uh, to go with it. He said, okay. Well, he said, it's, uh, it's posted in our bedroom, but he said, I'll tell you what it is. And I said, all right, you tell me what it is. He said, now, well, the, he was a young pastor, a wife, and uh, a baby about six weeks of age. He said, we get up at 4.30 around here, according to the schedule. And he said, uh, we, we pray for the first hour till 5.30. Then he said, my wife goes for her private devotions. And he said, I go for my private devotions from 5.30 till 6.30. Then he said, at 6.30, he said, uh, I continue with my devotions. And my wife begins to fix the morning meal. He said at 7 o'clock, he said we eat. He said at 7.30, while my wife's doing the dishes and so forth, he said I get cleaned up for the day. And then he said I pray again until uh, 8.30, at which time she's supposed to have the baby already. And he said at 9 o'clock, well, he said at 8.30, we meet again for prayer until 9 o'clock. He said at 9 o'clock, he said we leave to go calling. He said, we call from 9 o'clock until 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock, we come home for lunch. He said, we lunch from 12 o'clock until 12.30. He said, I pray some more while she cleans up the dishes. And he said, we leave again at 1 o'clock to go calling. He said, we call until 5 o'clock, at which time he said, we come home. He said, she fixes the evening meal. And he said, I study a little bit and pray some more until, uh, he said, we relax a little bit until 7 o'clock. And then he said, we go calling some more. And he said, we call until about 9.30 or 10 o'clock. And then we come home and go to bed. I said, wow. (laughs) I said, that is some schedule. I said, have you... I said, you have not made any considerations at all for your precious wife or for your new... I said, your baby's just six weeks of age. I said, how does it seem to be working out? He said, well, we don't really know. He said, we haven't been able to get up at 4.30 yet. That's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) But you know, you can build air castles and never inhabit them. You see, it's so easy to dream dreams, to plan plans, and feel comfortable in that, and never get around to really doing what needs to be done. But now, as we bring this into focus on the most important thing, Your soul. My soul. Because all souls belong to God. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4. God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of man is a great mystery. But God is the owner of every soul. God's word brings out how that he is the creator and the maker of all things. He made this world. 
He created this earth. He made the animals. He made the trees. But the crowning work of God's creation is man. And in Genesis 2 and 7, his word reveals to us that God made man and breathed the breath of life into him and man became a living soul. You and I have each one had a point where we began. But there is no point where that we shall ever end. Because once our existence has started, though this physical temple will be taken down if Jesus tarries and we shall all go that way, a hundred years from tonight, I will still be Gary Brueger. And I will either be in heaven with the redeemed or I will be in hell with the lost. And 1,000 years from tonight, it will still be true. And a million years from tonight, it will still be true. There was a point where I had a beginning. But my soul is a living soul. And shall go on for eternity. Either saved or lost. Now the soul, one soul being worth more than the whole world, more valuable, and the crowning work of God's creation, Satan wanted to retaliate, wanted to get back at God. And he made that trip to the garden. And there by temptation, he tempted our first parents to sin. But God was not caught unprepared. He foreknew that. And he had devised a plan in the council chambers of eternity. And his son said, I will go and I will become the sacrifice for sinful, rebellious man, that they might be brought back in to a relationship, a right relationship with the Trinity. So you see, that makes our souls twice gods. First, he made us, and then he's bought us. Years ago, we were buying children's records for our children, and I guess Dad enjoys them probably as much as the children, but one that played over and over and over at our house was a little story about a little fellow who, who built a boat. He did a fine job on that boat. And the day came when he was all finished. He had it painted. He had his name on the bottom. He had his little sails on it. And he took it down to the river had a string tied to it, and he put it out on the surface of the water. He was getting the thrill of his life watching his little boat sail on the water. But all of a sudden, the current was too strong and the wind in the sails and his string broke. And the little fellow was brokenhearted to see his little boat sail off downstream and he was helpless to get it back. 
period of time later, I believe it was in the story that he had gone to his grandmother's who lived at a little town downstream a ways. He was in that little town and as he walked by a little second-hand shop, he looked in the window and there was his boat. He went inside and he said, Mister, you got my boat in the window and I would like to have it back. And the man was a little surprised, and he said, Now, wait a minute, sonny. He said, Somebody brought that boat in here, and I bought it off of him. He said, That's my boat. He said, But, mister, if you'll look on that boat, he said, On the bottom of it, you'll see my name there. The man went over, and he picked it up, and sure enough, there was the little fellow's name. Well, he said, Son, how much money do you have? And the little fellow told him, He said, well, I paid more than that for the boat, but he said, it's your boat. He said, give me your money, and you can have your boat. And the little fellow, so happy, took his little boat, and he walked outside the store. And he says, little boat, now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I've bought you. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for every one of us here this evening. He made us, and he's also bought us. God has rights to us, but he's made us a free moral agent. He doesn't want just a robot to serve him. He has given you a will. You are free to love whom you want to love and to serve whom you want to serve. Now God is faithful to speak to you and to deal with you and to try, endeavor to draw you to himself. But there's also another force active in this world who is endeavoring to get you to go the other way, to rebel against God and to do your own thing and to have your own way and to live in sin. But remember this, not only are all, do all souls belong to God But God strives with every soul. God strives with souls through the agency of good men. Through evangelists, through preachers, through pastors, through Sunday school teachers, through Christians. Every good and godly man and woman that has ever crossed your life is a testimony of God's grace a testimony of what God can do to a man or a woman who will allow him. God strives with souls through providence. I don't believe that a one of us are here this evening by accident. I believe God so orders and allows and brings things to pass in every one of our lives. It is not just by chance that you're a student at God's Bible school this evening. God's providence has worked in your life. And you're here. God strives with us through our conscience. I remember as a little child, one of the highlights of my summer was to get to go to spend the majority of the summer with my grandparents who lived on a large farm. But being a young boy, full of life, Grandma and Grandpa couldn't always keep up with me. They didn't always know where I was. Now, they told me the limits. 
You know, there were some places I was allowed to go, some places I wasn't. Some things in the barn I could do and some things I couldn't. I dearly enjoyed swinging on that big old hay rope up in the mow, but it was dangerous. And they told me I wasn't supposed to do that. And I suppose every little guy has always enjoyed getting down by a creek someplace and skipping rocks. But there were a lot of snakes down there. They didn't want me down there by myself. And so there were some rules that I was very aware of. And they said, now, Gary, you can't go down and swing in the hay mow. And you can't go down to the creek. There were some other things, but those stand out in my memory. And I remember that during the day, when Grandma and Grandpa would be busy around the house, it was such a temptation for me to slip off and to go down there and enjoy a good swing in the haymow. I loved it. Or to go down to the stream and to pick up stones and skip them around. There wasn't electricity at Grandma and Grandpa's house yet, and I remember when she would take me up to bed in the upstairs bedroom. They slept downstairs. She would take me up to the back bedroom. She'd carry that kerosene lamp, and we'd go up there, and I'd climb up in that big old high bed, and she had straw ticks on it during the summertime, and I would lay down on that straw tick. Grandma would kiss me goodnight. And then she'd walk out of the room with that light. And I was a city boy. And it was dark. And it was quiet. And I could hear all sorts of things. But a sound would begin to come to me that had been there all day long, but I hadn't heard it. It was the pendulum on that great big clock down in the dining room. Tick, tock, tick, tock. But it wouldn't just say tick, tock. It said, Gary's bad, Gary's bad, Gary's bad. And I'd lay there in that darkness. And I'd, I'd get so concerned. And I can remember many times. I'd have to get up. And I'd have to make my way down through the darkness. And find the stairs and get downstairs. And I'd have to tell Grandma and Grandpa. I was sorry that I'd disobeyed them. What was that? It was my conscience. That clock wasn't saying anything, but my conscience was, you better be thankful for your conscience. I worked in the hospital some years while I was a student here at GBS, and I remember a man <clears throat> who came into the hospital and was a patient for a while. He had... <clears throat> tattoos all over his body and when he became well enough one day as I was doing my duties around there I asked him I said why all the tattoos he was happy to tell me he said I've got 236 of them because he said I 
I'm in the circus. I said, what do you do in the circus? He said, I'm a fire eater. Now, I've never been to a circus, never seen a fire eater. I said, well, what's the secret? I said, you surely don't eat that fire. He said, sure. He said, you got a book of matches? I said, no, sure don't. Well, I said, if you'll get a book, he said, I'll show you how to eat fire. So I looked up a book of matches, brought it in, and he took a couple of matches and he struck them, and he, while they were burning, he laid them on his tongue, kept his mouth open, and those matches just lay there on his tongue and burned. And I said, doesn't it hurt? He said, I don't feel a thing. I said, really? He lit the entire book. And that was a good-sized flame. And he put it in his mouth. And it was just burning away. I mean, it almost hurt my mouth. And I said, man, you're crazy. Put that out. And so he just closed his mouth, shutting off all the oxygen. And he pulled out the smoking book of matches. I said, how do you do that? Well, he said, years ago, I wanted to perform in the circus so bad. He said, I had no abilities. So he said, I heard about fire eaters. And he said, I found out what you did. He said, you just burn yourself so bad until you don't feel it anymore. Oh, I said, he said, that's true. He said, when I first started doing this, he said, when I would put flames inside my mouth, he said, it would hurt me just like it would hurt you to do it now. But he said, I wanted to be in the circus so bad, I didn't care. And he said, day after day, I'd put the fire in my mouth. And he said, big chunks of my flesh would come off inside my mouth. But he said, I kept burning it day after day after day. Until now, he said, my mouth is so tough. You saw me put flame in it. It doesn't hurt. I don't feel a thing. But he said, neither can I taste anything. He said, I would just as leave eat a, eat a piece of old shoe sole as to eat the finest steak in town. They'd both taste the same to me. But I've thought of him many times across the years. Because from that time, I have met people who with their conscience, they have played that same way. And they have said no, and they've silenced it, and they've gone their own way. Until they can be in a gospel service and the Holy Ghost can deal with them. And they seem to feel nothing. God gave you a conscience, young people. Keep it warm and keep it tender and sensitive to the steppings of the Holy Spirit. God also strives with every soul through his word. I love the word pictures that God describes the Bible with. A sharp, two-edged sword. Wow, what a picture. And it's pierced me and it's pierced you. It's a hammer. It's an awe. It's a fire. It's a mirror. It doesn't care 
whether you're tall, dark, and handsome, or whether you're short and fat. It says the same thing to you. It doesn't care whether you're intelligent or whether you're very ordinary. It says the same thing to you. It doesn't care the color of your skin. It says the same thing to you. God's word is so faithful and searching. And then God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. And so though he does strive, and he uses the agency of good men, and he uses the agency of providence, and he uses the agency of the conscience, and he uses the agency of his word, and he uses the agency of his spirit, he says, my spirit shall not always strive. And some people seem to have the, the thinking that in order to strive with the spirit, that you have to double up your fist and you have to scream at God, no! But you don't have to. As a pastor, as a preacher who's traveling around, I'm entertained in a number of homes. Let's say that we've just enjoyed a wonderful meal and the hostess of the home says, To we who are seated at the table, I have pie, I have cake, I have ice cream. What would you care for? Brother Brueger, what would you like? I don't have to jump up from the table and shake my fist at her and say, I don't want any of your dessert. I don't have to upset the table, jerk the tablecloth off and say, I don't want your dessert. All I have to do is say very kindly and even with a smile on my face, no thank you, I wouldn't care for any. And you know, you can say no to God that very same way. You don't have to get violent about it. You can just say no. No. And some souls put off too long. I had a friend one time who knew that on his vehicle he had some tires that were bald. He was going to get some tires. But before he got the tires, there was a tragedy of an accident. He knew he was riding on faulty tires. He intended to do something about it. But calamity came before he got the other tires. A family that I'm acquainted with knew of a faulty wiring situation in their home. They knew about it. They were really going to call an electrician and have it rewired. But before they got around to it, though they knew it, they intended to, and tomorrow they were going to get to it. But one night, a fire broke out 
and they lost everything. They knew about the faulty wiring. They were going to do something about it, but they put it off too long. Some years back, I was in the hospital on a Sunday afternoon because the bed next to me was empty. A young Italian fellow was brought into the room. He was a healthy, handsome specimen of young manhood in his mid-30s. After the visiting hours and his being admitted, the room quieted down. We introduced ourselves, and I said to him, I said, Jim, why are you here? Oh, he said, I've had this problem, he said, in my chest. He said, there's just a little feeling. I, uh, he said, it's, it's nothing. He said, I've been telling my wife it's nothing for a long time. But he said, she's just been worried about it and been fussing at me about it. And he said, really? He said, I think I just, he said, oh, he said, I think it all started when one time I slept under a fan. And he said, I think I just caught a cold in there. And he said, there's just a little catch. And he said, it's really nothing. But he said, to satisfy her, he said, I went ahead and come in. And uh, a couple of days later, after they had run biopsies and tests on him, his doctor came in and he pulled the curtain between us. But I could hear through the, through the curtain. And the doctor said, Jim, I've got some very bad news for you. He said, there is a tumor. He said, by this time, according to the x-rays, he said, it's as big as a softball that's between your heart and your lungs. You have to be operated on. It looks like it's probably malignant, but we won't really know until we're in there. But he said, it's as size of a softball now, and it's growing. And then he said those words that so many people hear. If you had come sooner we would have had a better chance Jim knew something was wrong but he kept putting it off and putting it off and from the time that that happened in seven brief months he was gone he could have had help had he come sooner but he put it off. He said, tomorrow. And you know the Bible has many different illustrations of people. We cited two of them this evening, but there are others. Who intended, intended to do better. I have every reason to believe that the rich young ruler, though when Jesus said to him what he had to do in order to inherit eternal life, I believe that he intended to come back. But scriptures do not tell us that he ever came. But he probably intended to. But I do know this for a fact. That in my ministry, I have had far too many people who with good intention said, Preacher, later. There was a beautiful 16-year-old girl one Sunday evening 
that God was speaking to her in a very tremendous way. She was sitting over on the preacher's right-hand side, close to, close to the aisle, the outside aisle, and God was speaking so faithfully, and I felt led to go back and to speak to her. She came from a, a home that was not Christian. She was just one of our Sunday school girls, and she normally didn't come and stay for a preaching service, just come to Sunday school. But this Sunday night, she had come and was in that preaching service, and God had dealt so faithfully with her. And I felt an urgency about it, and I went back. I said, Teresa, Jesus is speaking to you this evening. She sobbed and said, Preacher, he sure is. I said, come on, let's give our heart to Jesus tonight. Let's go pray. Her sobbing subsided a little bit, and she said, Preacher, I want to be a Christian, and I'm going to be a Christian. But do you realize how young I am? I'm going to give my heart to Jesus, but when I get a little older. We left that pastorate in just about a month's time. Teresa kept attending Sunday school, didn't come for any more preaching services, that was the only time in her entire life that I'm aware of that God ever spoke to her. Just a few short weeks after we had moved to our next pastorate, one of the members there in the church sent us a newspaper clipping, and there was the story how Teresa, 16 years of age, had been on her way to the grocery store on an errand for her mother, and she was taking the family car. She had to cross a busy highway. And she either didn't see that big tractor trailer or she thought she could beat it. And she pulled out in front of it. And that truck smashed her vehicle and hurtled Teresa into eternity. I contacted the family I said, did Teresa ever pray? They said, preacher, she came to Sunday school, but she was never in another preaching service. And as far as anyone knows, she never prayed the first time. She thought she had a lot of tomorrows. She said, preacher, I will. I'm going to. When I get a little older, but I'm so young. I just moved from Fairmont, West Virginia in July. There's a young unsaved family that I'd called on many, many times. I only ever got the husband in church one time. I've dealt with him about his soul many, many times in his home. He was a kind man, but he was a sinner. He enjoyed making his own wine. He enjoyed drinking. He enjoyed uh, cursing. He enjoyed just being a sinner. But when I talked to him about his soul, he would not be belligerent. When I would pray with him in his home, many times he would hold on to my hand after we had prayed. With tears in his eyes, he'd say, Preacher, I know you're trying to get me to do what I ought to do, and I will. About a year ago, his grandmother got terribly sick out in the state of Delaware. 
He called me and he said, Preacher, pray. My grandmother's dying and I can't stand the thought of losing my grandmother. Please pray. And we prayed as a church and God touched the grandmother out in Delaware. Three weeks ago this evening, Bill Harvey was still alive and well. But three weeks day after tomorrow, he was out on a back road near Fairmont, West Virginia, riding his motorcycle. And he went left of center and smashed head on into a Bronco. The coroner said he never had a chance. His neck was broken on impact. And he died. I want to tell you something. I don't want and I don't need any more illustrations like that. It breaks my heart to think of a precious little wife and two fine little sons that a husband will never come home to her arms again and that father will never come home to two fine young sons again. But the thing that breaks my heart is that Bill was such a good guy and that Jesus loved him and died for him. And Bill could have been saved. And he was going to tomorrow. He really intended to. I'm confident of that. Tomorrow, or as Felix said, when I have a convenient season, I want you to know that there is no more convenient season than the here and the now to take care of what we know we need to take care of. Whether it's a restitution, whether it's giving our heart to Jesus Christ, whether it's getting sanctified, whatever it may be, right now is the time to do it. Gypsy Smith shared a story that touches my heart deeply, and I close with that. He said in his boyhood days when the gypsy train would move, he said the wagons would hold the women and the children. He said the men and the young men all had their horses or their ponies and they'd ride beside them. And he said we'd move as a caravan. He said whenever we came to a river, we would just ford the river and go on our way. But he said in the spring of the year, when the streams would be swollen, he said it was tough for us crossing streams. He said on this particular occasion, we came to a river that was flooded. So he said what we would do at times like that, he said we would have the women and the children in the wagon, everything tied down securely. And then he said, we men and boys on our horses or ponies, he said, we would get beside the team as they went out into the water. And he said, we would swim beside them and help them and escort them across. 
He said the majority of the caravan had already crossed on this particular day. But he said one of the, one of the wagons that had yet to cross was a wagon that held only a single person, a lady, a gypsy lady who was very heavy. She only had one living relative, that was her son. He was a stout and a strong young man. He was on his horse, and so he got beside his mother's team, led the team out. There was somebody else on the other side of the team, and they were taking one of the final wagons across. Somewhere out in the middle of that stream, there was a strange current that came and jerked that wagon, swung it around, and when it jolted like that, that large lady lost her balance, and she toppled over into the muddy waters. She could not swim, and that boy, when he saw that his mother had fallen into the waters, he left his mount and dove in to get his mother. In the muddy waters, it took him a moment, but he finally got a hold of her, and he brought her to the surface. She could not swim. She was frightened. She was frantic, and she was grabbing and clawing at him, and, and she, just, she just held on to him, and he could not swim any longer, and she took them both under. He fought loose from her embrace, came back to the surface, got another breath of air and went back and got his mother the second time. He fought with her to get to the surface. He screamed when he came out of the water and said, Mother, Mother, let me save you. But she was wild with fear. She grabbed him again. And down they went. Gypsy Smith said that happened three times. And the third time when he fought loose from his mother's embrace and came back. He was nearly breathless when he got to the surface. He took time to get a couple gulps of air and went back down to search for his mother again. But this time he couldn't find her. Gypsy Smith said several of us began to search for her. And an hour or so later, her body was found, and of course she was lifeless. He said, as we took her from the waters, he said, we went over in a distance from the shore. He said, we, we dug a grave because he said, that's the way the gypsies did. He said, we dug that grave. He said, the lady's body was prepared for burial. And then he said, we gypsies gathered around for a little service said one of the things that we gypsies always did was one of the family members would make the last statements after the service was over. And he said that gypsy mother laying in the bottom of that grave. And he said the gypsy boy standing there sobbing. That was his only relative. But more than that, it was his mother. Gypsy said he was holding his hat in his hand and he said that stout young man began to sob and he said mother mother I could have saved you but you wouldn't let me he sobbed he said mother I could have saved you 
but you wouldn't let me. What a sad, sad sight. But there's one worse, and that is if you, from this service this evening, would be so foolish as to put off what God is speaking to you about right now. And at the judgment bar, Jesus would say, I could have saved you, but you wouldn't let me. I could have sanctified you, but you wouldn't let me. Don't do that. Let him. Let him do it this evening. Don't put off till tomorrow or a convenient season. But let's do tonight what God is speaking to us about. I'd like to have an invitation number, please. And I'd like to ask you to stand quietly. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855, USA. I don't want to lose the